0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode on Single-Handedly, I'm Thomas yeah, and I'm Nick And today we've got a very special guest, Nick, very last minute I'm sorry for the setup hassle and sorry actually, to our
1: guest actually It is our first international guest hey, <laughs> round of applause <laughs> <laughs> It's true, it's true So, so our honour
0: Today we're joined by Ali Jawad He is a Paralympic silver medalist, world, world champion gold medalist he owns his own tech company, doing his PhD, and he's just like me. So, Ali, thanks for joining us. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, where do we get started? Lots lots to say. Where do we start? Which corner of the life oh, do we go from?
2: we going to start from birth?
0: Sure. From birth, let's okay. go. Okay.
2: Uh, so, I was born in Lebanon. Um, I was born as a double leg amputee. Um, when I was uh, born, um, the... Uh, <laughs> The doctor asked my parents if they wanted me to, well if they if they, if they wanted uh, to get rid of me, oh. because obviously disabled uh, child in Lebanon at the time of the civil war, it's just not you know it's not great. So luckily my parents said no, we're going to keep him. But we re- they realised very quickly that uh, they needed to give me a normal life. So we uh, fled to the UK. So when I was six months old, we um, yeah came over to London and. Uh, yeah, the, the rest has been incredible.
0: Cool. So, uh, from a young age, um, uh, one thing that I think me and you have in common right now, is we don't wear prosthetics. Yep. So how do you get around?
2: Uh, so, wheelchair. Okay. Or I crawl. So have you seen a dog running okay. after food? Like that? Well I see cake, that's what I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's the most beautiful thing about like being humans because we're so adaptable That's what we do find like
1: a way to do anything and some sometimes i mean like uh, when i met with you i started realizing how many how many times i take things for granted but at the same time like thomas has no problem doing the same things i do as well which still get, gets me thinking like wow like he's actually capable of literally doing the same things that i do i would expect that of course kind of similar situation for you that i think you had to adapt to the kind of the world around you yeah. in your own way of course
2: yeah, I think the, the one thing about being adaptable is um, my, my parents, when I started school, had to decide whether or not I went to a you know, special needs school, you know, special needs school, or a mainstream school. Um, and they said, uh, no, we, we think for him to achieve his potential, um, he probably has to go to mainstream school. But this is what they did, which is controversial. They took me to a schools that had no facilities, no ramps, no lifts, nothing. So they go, right, this is life, go and adapt. So I thought um, me having to climb upstairs, slide downstairs, carry my wheelchair up and down you know, um, steps was normal. I thought that was normal because I thought I had to adapt. So what they did was they go, this is how you adapt um, in life, but they use school as a trial, see if I can handle it. Uh, but what that did, it allowed me to be very confident in my ability. I learned very quickly. Um, anything that, any obstacle that I faced, I got through quite easily. But also, it allowed um, me to develop loads of like skills. Like I was confident, I was cheeky, I was loud, I was an extrovert. Um, I had a big friendship group, so I was never bullied. I was in the popular group. Uh, very popular with, uh, you know, the girls too when I was a kid because I was quite cute. Not anymore, but I was cute. <laughs> um, so yeah, like it, it taught me a way of kind of, Reaching my potential as a kid because you know they chose a very controversial way of raising me, where now that that would never happen. Um, so yeah, I was quite lucky that I'm bringing. They said, "Nope, I don't care if you have got no legs. You've got a brain. You've got emotions. Go and adapt." So uh, yeah, I was I, I adapted quite quickly.
0: And that like rough environment, I guess, because nowadays it's all very accessible. I guess it's more accessible than it was probably back oh, then. Oh yeah, more accessible now. Does that um, show you or like it was the hardest back then so then it sort of things got more accessible and more easy so you already got the hardest of it so you, you could be a bit like oh this is easy now like
2: yeah so um, I've always I think that upbringing has made me always chase after challenges on purpose I chase mm-hmm. after adversity on purpose because that stimulates me it gets me excited it means that I can Uh, truly learn of what I'm capable of because I put myself in situations that are uncomfortable and I used to do it like every day. Um, So even though, yes, it was considered tough back then, I've had to make up for it by making things harder now because I don't like easy. I always take the harder path uh, because easy for me doesn't really stimulate me that much. It's not rewarding.
1: All right, so you moved from the Middle East to the UK. Mm -hmm. How old were you?
2: I was six months old.
0: Ah, 6 months old. Yeah,
2: so a very cute baby. Okay. Yeah.
0: And which part of the UK did you move to? Uh London. And w- what part of London? Uh Tottenham. Okay. Tottenham is known for uh, having a bit of It was uh, ghetto. <laughs> it
2: was it was rough back then. Yeah, I'll say it was the ghetto back then. Uh I got yeah, we we came from humble background. Um I guess when, when I was growing up you either kind of stay to survive in gangs or you go out of there and you dream bigger. Um and I was lucky that at six years old, I dreamt of going to Panipik Games. So I knew I was destined for bigger.
0: Okay. So you we were always surrounded around crime and, yeah. I guess, drugs and... Yeah, yeah.
2: Crime, drugs, uh, knife crime, um, gangs. Uh, luckily, because I was so headstrong, nobody messed with me. But I'd, I'd fight too. Okay. Yeah, because I was... Even though I had no legs, I was quite strong upper body. So people my age weren't as big as me. So ne- they never messed. Plus, who'd hit the silver person? <laughs> come on so I use that to my advantage uh, but yeah um yeah I had bigger dreams than just staying in the Tottenham
1: so how how did you at six years old decide this is my future is going to be this like being a paralympian for example
2: yeah well probably by accident um in I think 96 I was watching the Atlanta Olympics um so you, you guys are too young but you probably might know him I watched a man called Michael Johnson win his historic 200 and 400 gold medals. And...
0: Uh, 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 Doping, doping. Controversy, controversy. Well, (laughs)
2: he's never been caught. And I I think the way he speaks, I do believe him. I think he's a freak. I think he's one of them where I think he's a freak. definitely. He's amazing He's amazing. You can't take that away from him. Um, But what what struck me when I was watching him um, was the way he was running. I was like, he's running like a duck. But he's beating everybody.
0: Yeah, he was... Run like a duck.
1: Give me some background. I have no idea what this guy is. So,
0: amazing athlete. Um, amazing sprinter. And he had quite a unique way of running. He used to run a bit with his legs. I mean, they were... Yeah. Y-
2: you, know how, you know how ducks just run? Yeah. Like, you know, duck. The, yeah, the so technique so was yeah. a broad body kind of... Yeah, so if I had to compare his technique to something, it would be a duck. But he was a very fast duck. <laughs> it, it was world record at the time. Yep. It, it was It was unbelievable what I witnessed. And I knew I was witnessing something very special. But it was when he was on the podium where I saw, his, I saw his emotion, what it meant to him. Now, even though he was American, not British, something in me said, I need to feel what he's feeling. I have to feel what he's feeling. So I thought, I'm going to be there. Now, at the time, it was the Olympics because the Paralympic Games was not really on TV when I was six. Um, so I felt I was going to go to the Olympics, which is crazy. Um, but I, regardless, I wanted to be on the podium just like him and experience it. Uh, so I made it my life mission to try and get there.
0: So when, after seeing it at six years old, when was the first step towards sport? Because you didn't get into weightlifting until quite later on.
2: Yeah, so when I was uh, 11, okay, I started judo by accident. Judo. Yeah, judo by accident. So um, I was in the playground. Somebody called me a disabled pig. So took the, yeah, they, they took the piss out of me, right? Okay. So I got off my wheelchair and started beating them up. Started beating them up. So uh, the teacher came, pulled me, pulled me away. And remember, I'm a good child, so I don't, I don't get detention. So she goes to me, right, detention after school. I was like, what? But he called me, he's like, I don't care. You reacted, look at him, <laughs> like you battered him. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got sent to detention. Uh, but in school, we had a detention room. And she goes, no, I want you to come to the sports hall. I was like, that's weird. Detention's not there. So uh, I said to, well, I called my mum and said, I'm going to be late. I didn't want to tell you that I I had detention because you'd kill me. Arab parents, you know, the sticks start hitting you. Um, Is it a Lebanese thing? Lebanese thing, yeah. (laughs) My parents, like, oh. Because they thought I was the golden child, so. Um, Yeah, so I got into the sports hall and um, there was loads of mats laid out. And she said to me, right, you know what you did to that boy today? Do it to me. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, "Here's here's a judo gi. I want you to fight. I was like, huh? She batted me. Okay. Oh yeah, because she was a black belt in judo. She my PE teacher. Yeah, she, oh, she I got absolutely battered, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm being beaten by a woman!" <laughs> Obviously, I was eleven. I was like, being beaten by a woman. I don't tell anybody in school they might take the uh, piss out of you, but what she did was she humbled me, like like completely humbled me. But she said to me that I think you have potential to do this, and uh, I want to coach you. So we created a judo club at school. Uh, went four times a week. It was my first kind of time where I was juggling to be an athlete and um, do my homework, like going to school. My parents were obviously not that sporty. They wanted me to focus on academia, but I said to them that I can do both and I'll prove it. So at 11, I had to, one, grow up, but two, try to organise my time in a way where I could do both. Um, so I did uh, judo for four years uh, to a high standard, but... Judo at the Paralympic Games is only available for blind or visually impaired, not for amputees. Um, so we didn't know that at the time because obviously Parasport was, wasn't was transparent anything. The classification system back then was not that great. So we only found out maybe a couple of months before the Athens Paralympic Games, even though I was incredibly good, I'm not going because of classification. And that, that was, yeah, that was um, heartbreaking. So four years of work down the drain.
0: But... One thing that I've seen a lot in, especially uh, wrestling as well, freestyle wrestling and all martial arts, usually people with an amputee tend to compete with much smaller people than them because, especially for me, I used to compete, I used to do judo as well and uh, I was bigger than my competitors because the muscles and the bones which were missing from here I could make up from f- in my legs and in my my. Oh, I don't
2: know. okay. No, I, I was fighting able able-bodied men. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I was fighting. Yeah, but
0: yeah. They, but your weight weight class would, would be the same. Yes. So, but so you're much wider than them.
2: You think I'm fat? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I'm just no, but the first <laughs> thing
0: I noticed about you was your arms. Have you ever measured them?
2: Yes. So at my peak, uh, this was before Rio. Um, I weighed fifty-five kilo. Okay. So, eight stone and a half, I think. Uh, I was 17 and a half inches, my arms. How much? 17 and a half inches. Yeah, at my peak. I was, I was I was incredibly big for that body weight, yeah. 17
0: and a half inches. Nick, you know what you're saying?
1: I saw some videos of you lifting weight. <laughs> I'd have to say, quite fucking impressive. Okay, talking to the gym boys. First of all, drop how much
0: do you think Ali lifts? Bench press. bench press, not squat because that's... we have got three yeah. seconds. <laughs> three, two, one. And you want to tell them how much you lift?
2: So my competition personal best, um, this was when I weighed probably 55, 56 kilo, uh, is 195. But in the gym, I've bench pressed 202 kilo. Oh my God.
1: 200
0: kg. Yeah. Some people don't even dream squatting that.
2: Yeah, d- yeah. People can't even touch their legs. So imagine uh, the pain that I went through with my arms.
0: <laughs> and uh, talk us through the process. Then at sixteen years old, um, uh, first time going into going into the gym. Yeah. Um, uh, how how did that feel? Was it intimidating? Was it something that you were really excited about? It was. How was it?
2: It was actually by accident. Um, so in the UK, uh, we do um, when you're sixteen, you do GCSEs, you know, exams. Um, so I finished, I think it was the maths exam. And my friend was like, do you want to go to the gym across the road? Because there's a gym across the road from the school. He said, oh, let's go. and I was like, no, I need to go home and revise. My parents will kill me. And I was like, no, no, let's go, let's go. I was like, okay. So we went to the gym across the road. And this gym is proper, like, old-fashioned. Like, rocky, Balboa spit and sawdust gym. Like, leaking, dusty, grunting, smelly. Like, it was like, yeah, it was like rocky. Which I love, Rocky, because I grew up with Rocky. Um, so obviously, at that age, you want to bench press because you know you know what boys like at sixteen. Bench press. Um, remember, this is my first day in the gym ever, so I've never been to a gym, never, ever, t- never, ever. ever, never touched a weight. So because all the judo stuff was circuits, bodyweight stuff. Yeah. So um, yeah, got to the gym. We got a corner. Started lifting. I well, started bench pressing. My first ever bench press. Uh, I got to 100 kilo. Yeah, the whole room completely stopped. And I thought I did something wrong. I was like, why are they looking at me weird? Like, it's a gym. You guys are lifting more than me. Like, w- like what have I done? Um, So this big guy comes up to me. He's like, stay here. I need to get somebody. And I was like, oh, no. I've done something wrong. I said to my friend, we're packing, we're going. Right? So we packed the weights, went to reception to get out. And this old man blocked my way. He's like, uh, where are you going? I said, uh, going home? He's like, no, no, no. He goes, do you know what you've done? I was like, no, what have I done? He said, uh, you've lifted 100 kilo. I was like, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? He's like, well, you're obviously 16. This is obviously your first time here. And uh, not many men lift 100 kilo, even if they train. He said, you're going to have to come back. He goes, I can I can get you to a Paralympic Games because I used to be the national coach. He owned the gym. So uh, we're lucky. Uh, uh, You had somebody of that caliber um, Yeah, being next door to school So um, I went home that night And I researched what I had to do To get to the Paralympic Games Back then, um, this was crazy So just to qualify my body weight at the time Just to qualify was 180 kilo. Just to qualify Now juniors do not do very well In powerlifting Because it takes a very long time um, to to gain maximal strength, you have to work very very hard to get to that sort of standard. So not many juniors get to a Pan Games back then. So you have to be very special to go. Um, so I went back. and said, oh, I said well, I went back to him the next day and I said I said to him 180 kilo. Like I, I can't do that. He said, well, yeah, but forget about you know, forget about the the weight. You're so young. These guys they're 10 years older than you. You know. So he he said that in 10 years time, probably even less, I'll be up there. Um, So this was 2006 And Beijing was 2008 He said to me Forget about Beijing Because you're too young Uh, He actually said to me If you get to Beijing I'll drug test you myself As a joke, (laughs) obviously Um, He goes But the one afterwards You'll be 23 You'll be in that bracket of going So I committed four times a week Um, And also I was going to college as well So I was balancing So I'm used to balancing And then within Two years On my birthday I qualified for Beijing I uh, broke the British record, senior record, four times that day to go, and uh, yeah, I, I managed to get there.
0: And what was the, the your qualifying? One eighty. One eighty. Yeah, I've so got.
2: so the British record at the time was one seventy senior. It's not been broken for twenty five years, and I was a junior, so I, I had to I had to break it four times to go, and I did it on my birthday. Amazing! The, the best cake I'm ever gonna have.
0: <laughs> and uh, had you already started with full on training? So was it um. Uh, team around you. Um, uh, to put that into perspective, what goes into a, an actual team okay. in at at the highest level?
2: Right. Okay. So we're talking at the highest level. Highest, highest. Yeah. So, so not peak. not when so not when I started. Um, so on the, highest, later yeah, on at the highest level. the highest
0: level. What does a day look like um, with so your team?
2: So in the UK, um, we have we're lucky to have lottery funding. In the UK, lottery funding funds a lot of the. Olympic and Paralympic sports, okay? What that does, it allows the athlete to train full-time. The athlete gets a, I think, uh, an athlete award. So it's it's like a grant. So we can, it's like, you're technically getting paid um, to be full-time. But what it does allow, which is better than payment, is it surrounds you with the best possible team, the best coaches, the best Sports scientists, nutritionists, doctors, lifestyle advisors, uh, anything you can think of, I have access to, right? And that's mega expensive if I had to pay for it myself. But what they do, they're in charge of getting me to my optimal performance uh, at major championships. Okay. They work together, they monitor me, I get coached, I learn. Um, I think there was what, maybe seven or eight people on my team, just 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 for me and the, the other lifters. but. I'm very v- I know how lucky that sounds that I have a team like that, uh, incredibly intelligent people guiding me on to, to that level. Um, so yeah, I'm, the UK, we're quite lucky in that sense that we have got a system that really does help
0: athletes. What, what, what would, if the average person had to do it, what would that cost them?
2: You know what? I'd, if you take, so if, for one year, if you look at all the salaries that my team potentially has, I don't know their salaries, but I'm guessing... I'm thinking like maybe 150 200k a year, at least. But you have to remember, like, I have access to a national center with the best gy- the best gym in the country in the world at Loughborough University. So, and also training camps are paid for, uh, competitions are paid for, all the all the medical stuff is paid for. So I get benefits on top of the team. So, yeah, I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. So it's, it's very it's very expensive.
1: Something I want to ask. Um, that's been kind of looming in the back of my head so you said that when you were young they kind of wanted you to adapt to everything um how w- how was that like was it a big struggle for you did it did it at any point kind of break you down where you couldn't understand like why maybe you weren't like other people or something like that like what was the the, the thinking behind that when you were growing up
2: so that's a good question because a lot of people think that I must have struggled in the time. And that was actually the opposite. Because I thought adapting was normal. So when kids around me wasn't adapting to their environment, they were breaking down, I was like, Why are you so weak? Get up. And they looked at me like, What? I was like, get up. Like, you fell, you broke you hurt your knee, so what? I got I got one knee. Like when you put it into perspective, they're like, oh yeah, right, like, he's only got one knee. Shit, okay. So I've always been someone that um, can adapt very easily because that's how I'm built. Um, I always see obstacles as... A lot of people run away from obstacles. Uh, I run towards them because I feel like I can get over them. And that's where the challenge is. Um, so I can, I can tolerate a lot in terms of... Neck, like I can tolerate fa- failure upon failure and failing keep going. I'm someone that can perform a task no matter how I feel. I can be sad, I can be angry, I can be anxious, I can be happy, I can be confident. I can perform exactly the same task every time. And, that, and that's, the, that's the key.
1: I think it's uh, a perfect answer, First, firstly. Um, and you mentioned that, of course, well, it comes to a physical challenge that you had, but I think, obviously, it helped you mentally a lot as well. Yeah. So it kind of went hand in hand. Um, were there any times when you were growing up that you had um a negative kind of experience where it made you think like is, is is this is this who i am is this or is everyone else thinking a little better than me
2: this sounds really weird but i felt that i was misunderstood because the kids around me weren't thinking like me or feeling like me because i was adapting to many things a lot of them had it a little bit easier and they were still struggling and i didn't understand why they were struggling Because kids don't really talk about their emotions. They just lash out or they fight. So
1: you obviously had to mature. I had to mature much quicker.
2: Yeah. 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 So I was thinking, why are they so emotional over little things? Because if I can adapt easily, why are they not on my level? Now, I'm not saying that I'm better. I'm saying that at the time I had to really think about how I behaved in front of them. Because I would have been the odd one out because I was adapting and taking things in my stride. So I learned very quickly that a lot of people feel things differently and you have to understand it from their point of view. You have to really understand somebody um, before you judge them. I Ideally, don't judge them because a lot of people have experiences that they're, they're still kind of uh, processing. Uh, and some people take a long time to process emotions and feelings and reality where I can process very quickly and move on. Some people can't do that. So I had to really understand that when I was a kid.
1: Okay, now going on to something else. Um, you achieved a lot when you were still young, mm-hmm. um, the Paralympic Games, uh, which the first one was... Beijing. Beijing. And that was in which year? 2008. 2008. And you were also in 2008 diagnosed with Crohn's disease.
2: Yeah, so I got diagnosed in 2009. Okay. The, the night before I competed in Beijing... So remember, I was in college. I'm going to the Paralympic Games. I was famous in college, right? I I was one of the popular ones because I was going to a Games, right? The only person at the college to ever make it because the college I went to was academic. They didn't have sports people. Um, So I was living the dream. 19, training full-time plus education. I was like thinking this is great. And then you get, life humbles you. It likes to remind you that actually you, uh, you know, sometimes you have to put your stumps On the floor, not on your feet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the the night before I competed, um, I think it was dinner time. I started getting quite sick. I I didn't know why. I was getting feverish. My right side was hurting my tummy. I thought it was my tummy was hurting me. I was was sweating. I was fatigued. I didn't know why, because I thought I was in the best shape I've been at the time. And, um, yeah, I got back to the apartment uh, in the village. And... I got worse. So overnight, I'd lost three kilo overnight. I was seeing blood in the toilet. Uh, I couldn't believe what was going on. Now, I thought I'd caught something because obviously in a Paralympic village, you've got different nationalities, different habits, different cultures, different foods, you know, and sometimes you, you know, you do cat stuff, you know, just, it's just an alien environment, right? Um, but yeah, we I woke up and they were going to pull me out because they weighed me. way be like, now, nah. like, you're going to be quarantined, um, have to monitor you and um, I said no I begged them I said look I'm not here to medal because I'm a kid like I was never here to medal I was actually lucky that I got here because it's only been two years I just want to compete so whatever position I come I come I just want to compete so I managed to compete the aim was not to come last uh, because I qualified in last place to go uh, but I didn't come last which was good but my performance was not that great Um, and yeah I got flown home and then that's when The nightmare happened because when I got home, it got much worse. So I lost 20 kilo in body weight in eight weeks, which is a lot of body weight to lose. Um, I was seeing blood in the toilet constantly. My stomach was always hurting, like severe pain. We're not talking about like cramps. We're talking about pain that will make you pass out. Uh, I wasn't eating. Um, I'd lost all my gains. So obviously at 19, looking buff and then looking thin. Um, The joke was I looked like a zombie. Where I was I, I lost my color because uh, I'm quite tanned I lost my color I was very pale um, yeah so it was quite worrying so they started testing me for cancer um, so I thought I can't believe this I've, I've achieved my goal of the dream and now I'm getting tested for cancer in a hospital at bed and then um, it took them nine months to diagnose me with Crohn's now at the time I didn't know what Crohn's disease was I thought I'd take a tablet and go home and uh, I'm back on back in the gym and um, but the consultant was, you know, quite adamant. This is going to change my life. Yeah, Crohn's is uncurable. You have to manage it.
0: For so those who don't know, can you give us a brief of what um, Crohn's is?
2: Yeah. So how I describe it is, um, everyone's immune system protects them. Okay. Mine attacks me. So because it attacks me, it gives me um, symptoms like very quite bad symptoms. So extreme diarrhea, blood, um, extreme fatigue. You're talking fatigue where you can't get out of bed. Um, you're always, always tired it's just, Yeah, you're always tired uh, Severe pain Like you're in severe pain If it, if it flares um, And it could be fatal uh, At the extreme Yeah, so When I got the diagnosis um, At the time was 2009 No crone sufferer Had ever won a medal At any Olympic or Paralympic Games It has never been done At the time So what I was about to do, potentially, was uh, to go after something that has never been attempted because medical science hasn't caught up with elite athletes having Crohn's. So in 2009, um, it was either retirement, which was advised, or I used myself as a guinea pig to try and pull it off.
0: And that's what you went for?
2: I chose to be a legless guinea pig, yeah.
1: (laughs) So what was that journey like? Of course, in 2009, so in 2009 you were diagnosed... Doctor tells you listen. You have Crohn's. It's it's going to change your life. Mm-hmm. Walk me through that. Like what was your mental state?
2: So that yeah, so that meant that I was crazy because um I think at the time I think my girlfriend was in the room. And this was like a new relationship. And I thought, wow, it's going to affect her because she was, she was an athlete at the time. So I thought she she's going to have to look after me when I flare. This is crazy. Like when 1920, she shouldn't have to look after me. And she's a gold medalist in Beijing. Like, she was, you know, like big time. I was nothing. So um, I felt that it wasn't just going to affect me. The decision I made is going to affect everybody else around me. It's whether or not they were ready for what's going to come, because I didn't even know what's going to come. So um, it got to a point where I tried to make a comeback, it it wasn't working. I was passing out in the gym, literally passing out in the gym. Um, Training was going badly. Um, I had to do loads of trial and error, but it wasn't working. I was failing every day. It was Crohn's was beating me, big time, big style. And it got to 2010 um, in March. I remember um, waking up with my girlfriend at the time. She woke me up. She's like, can you smell that? I was like, smell what? She's like, there's, there's a smell in the room. It was dark. So uh, she goes, it smells like blood. I was like, no, it's not blood. Well, I don't know what that smell is. She the light on The covers came off I was covered In blood Crazy and I was like Whoa She goes right Hospital So I remember Being in Leicester I think it was Leicester I think Hospital And um I was really sick So What happened was Luckily I had uh, Private medical care uh, And they rushed me in uh, That week To do some blood tests They said uh, We're going to have to operate To remove Part of your because It's too inflamed Because that's why You're so sick they, I remember the night before the operation in London, um, the doctor came and said, we're going to have to prepare your parents for the worst. We don't know what we're going to find in there. If you survive, um, you know, we, we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we have to prepare, prepare everyone. So my friends came, my family came. You uh, could see the fear of my mum. I think my mum's face got me the most because uh, you could tell that like, she'd lost her colour. Um, and it was actually me that... Tried to kind of raise the mood. I said, look, if I die, I die. Like, I'm going to fight. Um, I always do. And if I die, I've been to a game, so it's fine. I've achieved my dream. It's cool. So um, we had the operation. It was six and a half hours long. Um, I got woken up. And I said to the nurse, uh, am I dead? She was like, no, you're fine. He goes, "Uh, you're a great fighter. Um, She said, You know, you pulled through and uh, now you recover. The issue was, that me being me, um, 2012 was two years away. Now, obviously, i would not competed since Beijing. I was really sick. And I realised that the doctor gave me another another chance. He saved my life. So I thought to myself, I cannot stand kind of letting the parade go by in my home city and I'm a spectator. I have to be there. I have to compete. So I said to the doctor, "Um, I'm planning to come back. He looked at me, he's like, no, I can't sign you off. He goes, you need six months bed rest. He goes, you cannot, you cannot come back. This is, you know, we we saved your life. Go live. So I said, yeah, you saved my life. So I'm going to go live. So um, what I did was, I was in the hospital for like a week. And then, then the second week I went to the gym. Yeah, don't do that. Went to the gym. Um, lifted 110 kilo. I thought I'd ripped. I thought I thought I'd ripped the internal stitching on my intestine because it was painful. Now nothing. Luckily, nothing happened. But it felt like I'd done something. So I went to have my four week um update with the consultant. I looked at my scar. He goes to me, uh, "What have you done in four weeks?" I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, uh, "You're recovering more in two weeks than I've seen in four in four weeks than." I've seen people recover in four months. The way you're standing, the way you're moving, you're not in any pain. What have you done? I was like, nothing apart from going to the gym. Um, He goes, look, he goes, if you're serious about coming back, if you keep showing this progression, I'll sign you off. So he he goes, give me a week. So I went, but yeah, after a week, we saw him again. He saw the scars. He goes, right, I'm going to sign you off. Go and train. He goes, if anything happens, come back. Anything, so uh, yeah, I had, I think, it gave me the go ahead to go for London, and um, yeah, managed to get to London on the last day of qualification. Um, so in that four year cycle between Beijing and London, I only trained five months in four years, and I made the games in London. It was it was like a Rocky Balboa comeback. It was great,
1: amazing. That's crazy. Such a roller coaster of emotions in such a short short time. Yeah. amount of time yeah. so you diagnosed 2009 mm-hmm. and you started training again after like
2: 2010 yeah proper yeah yeah i had to yeah mm-hmm. yeah because you only had to qualify is really hard in our sport it's only um the top eight lifters make it that's a very high standard so um yeah it was uh it was, it was a good comeback
1: what's that thing that keeps you keeps you in check how, how are you able to kind of wake up in the morning and know what you have to do and be motivated to continue doing that? How, c- Like when you have people who are um, like me, like say average people who want to go to the gym and they're not motivated, And how can someone like you where you have went through all of that and then you still went o- up above everything and you're like, this, I'm going to train, I'm going to do this. How did you manage to do that?
2: Um, it's weird you've mentioned motivation because it's not motivation. Um, motivation is a, a myth. You can only be motivated for one or two days in a week, if you're lucky. It's about discipline. You have to be able to execute something, no matter how you feel. Because life is not going to stop for you. You have to always chase life. It's not going to happen for you and not on your lap before you're in bed. So I had to ask myself, no Crohn's sufferer has ever done this, right? I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be unpredictable. I have to be flexible. I have to be able to absorb a lot of failures. I had to. I had to also appreciate that people around me will will doubt me because of what they're going to see me go through because it's going to be painful for them to see. But for me, I I knew that in the process, it's the person that absorbs the most pain and and, and adapt to the most ridiculous obstacles um, is the person that, you know, will get there eventually. Um, so that's why I did I it's discipline it's not motivation because imagine being motivated tr- to try and chase after death. That's not there's no motivation for me the the motivation was to try and cheat
0: it. I couldn't have heard like a better explanation of what should push you forward like it is discipline it's not motivation it's consistency. things we really like speak about almost every episode yes. it's always almost the same same answer yeah discipline and consistency and sacrifice I think it's a good time to get on a short break we'll be back very soon <laughs> oh. um, getting back to the fourth and final Paralympic Games the Rio Games
2: you mean the, f- the f- Rio was third Rio so exactly Tokyo, Tokyo, was, Tokyo third. was the There's fourth third. yeah, yeah.
0: The third games, Rio. Mm-hmm. How were those then? Because Rio was the highlight, I guess.
2: Yeah. So after 2012, um, I had four years of incredible success. So I was, you know, world champion. Uh, brought the world record four times. Uh, I'd won every major medal on offer, apart the one, apart from the one that I wanted. The one that I wanted was a Paralympic one. Um, and, and it's weird because going into the games. I was in the best shape of my life, uh, and, and that's going to be the shape that I probably peaked at. Um, but it's weird how you think that pressure won't get to you until you face it. And you have to remember, in 2009, no crone suffered ever won a medal at the Olympic or Paralympic Games. It's never happened. So because of the story behind it, I got a lot of coverage. The fact that I was in, I was in shape... I was going to the games as one of the favorites. I was one of the faces of Team GB at the time, or Paralympics GB at the time. And, um, crone sufferers literally hung the middle around my neck before I got out there. And I thought to myself, if I don't do this, it'll be embarrassing. And that pre- that pressure was like, oh, wow, this is, this is serious now. Like, you're playing with the, the big boys now. Like, this is pressure. You're in good shape and you have to deliver. Um, and if you screw it up, it's going to be uh, watched a million times and uh, you'll never forget it. So um, it, it was weird because, as you know, the Olympics is before the Paralympic Games. So ironically, I wasn't the first uh, because I was at the training camp in Belo Horizonte. Uh, and I was woken up by a message from um, some per- somebody on Twitter, I think. And they said, have you seen this? And I was like, that's weird. Um, it turned out that night at the Olympics, uh, a girl called Kathleen, Kathleen Baker from America, swimmer, has won silver with Crohn's. Mm. She did it. Yeah. She beat me to it. Um, so I did the humble thing, obviously, and messaged her. She doesn't know me. i said, well done. Um, she just obviously deserves it. I know what it took to do it. Um, and you know what? She messaged me back. She said, good luck. Um, it doesn't. It was, she doesn't feel like the first. We can be the first together. She was very, very humble about it. And then that took the pressure off me because it's been done. And then two weeks later, it was my turn and I did the same thing. So, um, yeah, I completed the, I guess, the, the career um, the career slam of medals. Yeah, so career slam means um, Commonwealth Games, Europeans, World Championships and Paralympic Games. They're, they're the medals that you want. Uh, and I completed it. So, yeah, for me, it was incredible because you know, being told it can't be done, to having two athletes with Crohn's, one at the Olympics and one at the Paralympics, doing it in two weeks. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great moment.
0: Amazing. Third and final lift. Mm-hmm. How's that? What's the vibe?
2: As in, <sighs> as in what I have to go through?
0: Yeah. The third yeah. and final one is the, the decider, I guess, to get the second place.
2: No, I, I won the f- I, w- I pretty much won the medal on the first attempt.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I was
2: in such good shape that I started quite heavy, and okay. uh, yeah, I actually got one lifting. So second and third lifts I didn't get. <laughs> it was actually a very bad performance compared to London, and I, yeah, it's weird how you look back and you go, your performance wasn't great, but you did enough. Um, so looking back, I was in 200 kilo shape. I was going in there to make history as being the you know, I think the only athlete in the UK to ever bench press 200 at in this sort of way. I think only three or four men in history have ever done that uh, globally in that class or in the lightweight classes. And I thought I could be one of them and I'll do it clean because I'm not on drugs. So imagine. So I was going in there thinking, this is the shape of my life. If you're going to get 200 on the platform, this is it. And actually I underperformed in Rio. I only got 190. The pressure probably got to me in terms of the pressure that I put on myself to try win the medal because I, I said to myself I don't care what I lift I just want a, I just want a, I just want a medal so um, that mindset was bad and I guess looking back afterwards I was really annoyed with myself even though there was a silver there and I'd, I'd done it I thought it would have been much better if I won a bronze and bench 200 if you offered me bronze and 200 I would have taken that instead of a silver and 190 because hmm. 200 for me was it was like a pyramid medal it was the dream it was history um, I can only say I bench 200 in the gym but in the gym it doesn't matter so my best ever was 195 in competition and I have to live with that
0: just just a bit oh
2: yeah Two, 2.5 plates oh
0: yeah so um uh, you're doing a PhD right now as well for my sins yeah and uh, what are you doing it about
2: my PhD is in anti-doping and integrity issues in parasport
0: okay so, what's your take on anti-doping? On doping, how, how I much
2: guess. have you got? Um, <laughs> so, when I first started, we'll go back when I was sixteen. The first week of training, uh, my coach sat me down. And he said, uh, "I'm going to tell you something, and you either you can walk away, or you stay, but you have to you have to promise that um, you know you you really think about your answer." So he said to me that powerlifting is one of the most dirtiest sports on the planet, and to be in the top eight in the world, maybe yeah, top eight in the world at the time, you had to be on drugs. You had to take drugs, like yeah, um, because the lifts they were doing were crazy. Like just to qualify, one eighty to qualify, that's that's crazy, like you know. So he said to me that drug testing at the time is behind. The dopers, the dopers have good scientists, they have good doctors, the system can't catch them, and I, I, in 10 years, I have to have a decision to make, because if I'm on the platform, if I'm on the podium, and I'm second or third, and the two in front of me, or the person in front of me, is taking drugs, I have to have a choice of taking drugs to win, at all costs, or... I can sleep well at night knowing that I'm the best clean athlete on the planet, and I scared the shit out of them. He goes, "You have got two choices: you take drugs, or you do this clean." He goes, "If you're going to take drugs, you're going to have to count, You have to go out my gym because I don't do dopers, I don't train dopers." He goes, "But if you take the second option, I will give you my best. It's going to be hard. We have to we have to do things differently. You're going to have to really grind for it, but I'll make you the best clean athlete the country's ever seen." And uh, yeah. And that's when my fascination of anti-doping came because I wanted to change the system. Um, and yeah, I've competed; I've competed against loads of dopers.
1: Really? Uh, and I've beaten
2: them. And I've beaten them. So you know, I, I, But the, to to beat a doper is incredibly difficult. Like you have to live a certain way that nobody can understand because you have to be that more strict. That mo- that's more stricter. You have to live in a way that um, you have to. It's like a prison because the dope has the advantage chemically. So they, they they can recover better, and you have to be cleverer, and dopers are not clever, um unless it's uh you know unless you've got a country that's clever, got the facilities and they're doping at the same time, then you can't compete. But when you've got at the time when you've got countries that were doping, they didn't have the facilities that we had in the UK, so sports science bridged the gap, you know. So yeah, luckily I. Lifted you know big weights for a clean athlete, and I you know won you know medals that you know was were hard to maintain, hard to obtain. But I can look back on my career knowing that, regardless of the medals, I did it clean, and I did it with integrity. And I think, no matter how I'm remembered, that's what i want to be remembered for. Not the medals, not the world record, was the way I lived, um, and that's where my fascination came.
0: And throughout your how long was it? Uh, 11? No, 17. L- how many years did you lift for?
2: 15, 16 years.
0: So, throughout the 15, 16 years, has it, had it ever crossed your mind, for example, your a session wasn't going too well? <laughs> it's say, uh, how easy would it be? Just, mm-hmm. just a bit boost, a, a small boost. No, so, it, you,
2: it's funny because um, people thought I was on drugs. Because okay. I was benching so well, people generally thought I was on drugs anyway. Which was a compliment for me because I was like, okay, this is great, like I'm getting complimented. Um there was a discussion um by I guess, you know, a nutritionist, and he was joking, but he said, if I put my science hat on, forget about the programme, forget about anything else. Just as a scientist, because you're so gifted, clean, imagine if you micro dosed your bench press two forty. At fifty, at fifty flying kilo, you bench press two forty easy. He goes, um, like it's crazy, like what I think you're capable of as a human. But obviously, would never do it. But the fact that, as a scientist trying to push the boundaries of performance, you're so gifted naturally that imagine if we, if, if you got an extra boost, it's crazy. Uh, but would never do it, obviously. But like, you always imagine like what it could have been, how much I could have lifted. But I'm, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm happy to. I'd never do it anyway, because I've got Crohn's. I'm already sick. I'm already fighting for my life every day. Why on earth would I put in more chemicals to my body to uh, make it worse? So even if I had the choice of um, taking drugs and not get caught, I wouldn't do it anyway. My, I could, I couldn't sleep. I'd struggle. I'd, I'd be guilty.
1: Yeah. What's What's the science behind doping? Oh, it's a whole it's a whole art.
2: Yeah, but basically, doping can give you between five to fifteen percent on your natural performance, right? That's a lot in elite sport, you know. Um, So as a clean athlete, you have to use natural means to try bridge the gap. So sports science, lifestyle, nutrition, everything, right? So because the system can't test every single athlete every single day, that athletes don't go through the gaps. But then you've got countries like, you know, we know Russia, um, that have state-run doping. And I've competed against them because they take the piss out of me when I compete against them because, um, you know, we've, we've seen things. Obviously, athletes see things. You raise the issue and nothing happens. Um, and they're very, you know, unfortunately, dope is quite arrogant about it. They they know they can get away with it and they look at you and it's like, there's no shame. Uh, and it gets me quite angry, but um, I, I'm always someone that goes, I can't help that situation. So I'm going to have to try and beat them. So there's no excuses here. Um, but it does frustrate you. You have to get used to that frustration of, Knowing who you're competing against is potentially doping deny you you know a potential medal.
0: And what was your um, uh, what is the craziest experience you've had in the village with all the foreign athletes? In terms of doping, I mean both.
2: Yeah, so at a world championship, um, I think there was a I was sitting next to a a nurse, I think a team nurse uh, from another country. She had loads of flags in a in a in a bag. Um and obviously her team was lifting. They did very well. She started jumping. The bag fell. There's loads of needles on the floor. She saw what I was I was trying to take my phone out, but it's in my bag. So I was getting the phone trying to take a picture. She managed to get the needles, stuff in the bag and ran. So um yeah, we it, it just but I knew what was happening because the team was flying. They're putting seven percent in a year. Every every single one of them. Put 7% on the total a year. That's crazy. Um, so, yeah, we reported it. Um, nothing happened. And then a couple of weeks later, Russia got banned. Uh, well, Russia got... That, that documentary came out.
0: Uh, of... Um, I- Icarus. Icarus, yes, yes, yes.
2: And then suddenly the ball started rolling.
0: What's this documentary? It's an amazing documentary. Yeah. It's how how Russia had done the state-run doping. And... Uh, like they were passing bottles from the, the
2: yeah through the walls. Through the yeah, it was walls crazy. Yeah,
0: just so they could have clean tests.
1: So actual documentary. Yeah, yeah you yeah, should yeah. check
0: it out. It's amazing. And uh, they never caught him. He fled the country. The one who, who blew the whistle. Like personally, I think he should be hired by anti-doping because he knows But he's in danger. They're looking for. I, him I all know, over but personally, the imagine
2: he beat the system in, in a way that I've never seen. I want to employ him. To try counter what he did, because uh, only he only he knows.
0: Having a good conversation with him will like, oh, it will blow your change. mind. Yeah,
2: so obviously he's he's bad for what he did, right? But he's smart. But he's so clever. The issue that I have is that I think we should learn from him.
0: He's playing on the wrong team.
2: Yeah, come like come to anti doping and play for the right team and actually protect athletes rather than dope them. Um, but yeah, obviously he's he's been protected at the moment. He's in hiding, uh, and that will never happen. But for me, I'd I'd want to just. Talk to him about how we counter that. Because uh, I think we've got a lot to learn from him.
0: And I think I think Russia are one of the most advanced countries when it comes to export science in that manner.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, they've been doing it for years in terms of the advancement, right? Um, you've got lots of training uh, methods from Russia. Um, I, I think for me, like, I know now they're going to be allowed to compete in the Paralympic Games next year. I'm not too happy with it. Uh, I think that they seem to get away with a lot of, And we seem to let him back in all the time. And I think that sometimes enough's enough, uh, personally.
0: The flags don't show in many of the sports, in fact. Um, Uh, It's the Russian Olympic Federation now.
2: Flags don't matter because athletes are competing. Those athletes are there physically denying you of a place.
0: And they're not getting caught. And
2: they're not getting caught. Um, So for, for me, it's regardless of what you think about the neutral flag or... It being neutral, the athletes are still there. You're, you're still competing against a Russian athlete that potentially shouldn't have been there. Uh, and now they've, you know, they've, yeah, I think f- they've caused chaos, and we've let them cause chaos. And yeah, for me, it's it's tough on the athletes that have integrity because they think the the systems failed them.
1: Sorry for my ten minutes of silence, but <laughs> I it's have fine. It's fine. It's uh, but it's a really interesting I'm not topic. Not knowledgeable in this, but it's like from the outside perspective, it's crazy. Like what you guys are, were talking about. It's
0: like hacking in tech. Oh like yeah, yeah knowing yeah, knowing like what, what they to did. do. Yeah, and then not using it right. I guess oh,
2: it's just it's insane what happened. Yeah, it's insane. Um, but you know, the thing is, I hope the system learns from it. I hope they can put things in place now to try to protect athletes um, and have harsher ho- sanctions on state dopers. The issue is, um, I don't think they will learn from it. I think this will happen again, personally.
0: History does repeat itself. It does, I think so. Technology is always improving, so...
2: Yes. You're always going to get a mad scientist in the future, I think.
1: From a scientific perspective or, or, or um, biology perspective, what's the fallout of doping? Like these dopers after a certain amount of years do they like internally fuck themselves up or like what?
2: Yeah, I think the the side effects are I think you you, you could it increases your likelihood of diseases and conditions in the future um, but the issue is it makes you feel superhuman for five years you feel superhuman you can do anything, you think you can do anything and that feeling as an athlete knowing that you could feel like that, and also win medals for your country, you'd rather take that over a medical condition you might get in 10 years, you're willing to take the risk. Athletes are risk-takers, they have to be, right? So that's why doping happens, because the reward at the end is greater than the risk in the future, because they can't see in 10 years' time. They they, They would actually probably rather not live for 10 more years than go to the Olympic Games, cheat, and win a medal. I think that study has been done. They asked athletes. Probably. Yeah, um, what would you rather, like, dope now, get a gold medal, but in you know, five, ten years' time, you're dead? Or do you not take it and live longer? They said, don't go for the medal. It's crazy. Yeah, so that's how athletes think. It's, it's, um, it's, it's weird for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've read that um, athletes like yourself are some of the most dedicated People in the world of course on, on a insane level um, I'm not, not talking about doping or, or whatever like but I've seen that there is also a higher m- a higher percentage of people that when people at least that once they achieve what they wanted to achieve after they don't know what to do with their lives mm-hmm. and actually I think there was the Olympic blues. There's a word
2: for it? Yeah, so the Paralympic, Olympic blues. Yeah, when you get to a Games, you have to remember, it's four years of the most grueling sacrifice you're ever going to make. You deny yourself so much. But because you hype it up in your head every day, you get it. And because it's so high, and people don't understand how high that is. And we're talking about, you know, imagine for you, for example, what is the ultimate dream for you? And you get it.
1: The ultimate dream for me? Yeah.
2: What's like the thing that You've dreamt of All your life
1: I think Just being in a position Of being Financially free
2: Yeah Okay That's, that's what um, many people Would say
1: Imagine having double
2: Imagine having double Or triple that You'd be like What do I do now I'm bored I, There's no purpose for me Because I've already got What I want There's no purpose So that's when Athletes go Oh Well it's happened It's In another four years I know what it's taken To get there I don't want to do it again Because I know not like, It hurts to get there, it hurts. And imagine you get there, then you win a medal. So that suddenly you you know, you work really hard, you achieve what you want, and suddenly massive crash. Your body breaks down emotionally, because you're you're oppressing a lot of your emotions,
1: right? Because Throughout those four years? Yeah, because it's, years.
2: Cause it's, so it's a roller coaster. Your training doesn't go right for periods of time. You've got other issues in your life you have to sort out, but you have to block them. You have to be able to really zone in on the goal. And sometimes you're robotic and emotionless, um, but you have to get things done, regardless of what's happening. And suddenly, after it happens, suddenly you get hit by a like emotional bomb where you everything gets let out. I, it could be relief, it could be emotion, it could be things that you've repressed. Um, but it's, you're not the same for six months after. You're not like physically, mentally, emotionally, not the same. Um, you, you do kind of, you feel very sad.
1: How did you feel? Because, of course, you've been through it in many different um, points in your life, like going to the Games. How did you handle that?
2: Yeah, it was weird because I got warned about it in Beijing, but it didn't happen to me because I got sick. Yeah, so for me, I went to the Games. It was great, but then I got sick. So I was fine for my life. That was my blues, yeah? And then 2012, it was controversial with where I came. That was... It wasn't depression, it was sadness because of the controversy behind it. Because I came fourth, but it should have been a medal if it wasn't for external refereeing decisions.
0: This was the two reds?
2: This was the two reds, yeah. Um, So the the real blues was Rio. Because everything during that cycle was optimised for me to try and achieve that medal. And I was in the best shape ever. Things didn't really go wrong in that cycle for me. But what was in my mind was two things. One... I was haunted by 2012 every day. I had to think about that. And two, no software has ever done it. And I was about to do both. I was about to achieve the career slam and medals and be a crone sufferer that's won a medal there. That for me was a huge thing. And when I achieved it, it was, I was like, oh, this is it. This is everything you've dreamt of when you were six. How did it really make you feel? Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Like, yeah, like you get invited to events afterwards and you, know, you go viral and you get invited to lots of programs and you get popular, but I don't like being popular. Like, I, I don't like crowds. I actually don't like human beings. You've got to be around them. Um, so for me, I was like, this is chaos because it's disorganized. My, my life now was disorganized. It wasn't structured. It got, you know, my, my, my weeks weren't planned because you had to be on this media, this media, going out to this event, this event. And you can enjoy it for a week. But after that, I want to get back to a routine. And the routine went out the window for six months. Completely out the window. Um, And that's where the sadness was. It wasn't the fact that it was over. It was the fact that I'd done it. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Because it was just chaos.
0: There was no plan B after that?
2: The the plan was to go to Tokyo. but The thing was, that six months was so intense in terms of external um, distractions from the gym... Because obviously you get time off, you have to fill that time off. How do you do it? Well, you go out, you have fun, you do what you do, you do at university. Because I don't, I didn't live that lifestyle. You, you go out and you know do things and be silly and you know do you know the things that people celebrate with. You see your friends and family more and you know meet new people. But the, for me, it was I'd let my standards down. Mm. My standard is here. That's how I live. But then for that six months, it was here. I went to Vegas for a week, as well, to celebrate. Like some of the behaviors that I did, I was like, "This is not me," like it's not me. Um, so I came back just kind of disappointed. I got to, got to December in 2016. twenty sixteen, got to December. And I thought, "This is this is not Ali." Like you are disciplined. You're this is your standard. Like sack everything off and like let's go for this now. The issue was um, because of dipping in my standards on a daily basis uh, I caused another flare-up of my Crohn's the biggest flare of my career and that cost me my career so that's that's the level that I was at and any reduction meant my Crohn's was going to come back and um, really bite me in the bum and it did yeah so that's that's that's, what, that's why I was very um kind of frustrated with myself there's nobody else to blame apart from me I always take responsibility of my actions um but yeah that, that was that's what happened
1: That was in which year? 2016. 2016. Yeah, so after what, just exactly what, after the games.
2: Yeah, so won the middle. loads of celebrations for six months, and then in maybe November time, we had the blood test because I have to get checked. There was inflammation in my body, but we ignored it because I always say that you know when they say that if it's not fixed, don't break it. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually go no, if it's not if it's not broken i oh, sorry, if it's not broken, don't fix it, sorry. But if it's not broken, you fix it anyway. Break it anyway because you might find a gap mm. to get you better. Okay. And what we did was, and this was my fault, we ignored that sign and we carried on because I wasn't in any pain, I wasn't having the symptoms, but my, my bloods were saying, there's inflammation here, be careful. Because I just want to medal, I was in the best shape ever, I ignored it. Um, and it cost me. It cost me... Yeah, well, it's, it's still costing me now. So, yeah, it's been... Uh, and that's what happens when your standards drop. So it wasn't the apparently blues. It was more like I felt my standards dropping from normal and I wasn't happy with myself.
1: I think the, the discipline that you mentioned, like, um, kept with you, because you noticed that your standards went below yeah. what you usually used to, and you were able to pick yourself back up yep. and continue with it.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so everything that's happened in my life in terms of being adaptable and disciplined, it was the last cycle in Tokyo where everything was tested to the limit. Because of that flare-up that I say I caused, and I take responsibility for that flare, we, for two years, I couldn't compete because I was too sick. We tried every medication uh, on the market. Nothing, nothing um, worked. I was very sick. And in 2018, I remember had the consultant saying to me that they can't do anything for me anymore. And you have two options. One was a stoma bag. Um, uh, and two, there's a stem cell trial over a year, but you have to have aggressive chemotherapy. And in that trial, you might die. Any option that you pick now, you have to retire. There's no comeback this time. And I, f- and I was in the room with my psychologist, sports psychologist at the time, and I was like, oh... This is serious now. Like, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is bad. And uh, I thought to myself, okay, can I retire now being happy with what I've achieved and walk away and try and fight for my life here? Or do I really want to go to Tokyo and realize and accept that I'm not going to meddle? But is my medal just to get there? Is my medal pushing Crohn's to a limit that no other human being has ever taken it to? And also, am I willing to die for it? they are the questions in my head. So, twenty four hours later, having reflected um, by myself in the dark in my room, literally, I was in the dark for hours, just reflecting everything. I realised that because we've monitored me for years, I know any medication on the market and what it does to my body. I know exactly what it does to me. So, I suggested a third option to the doctor. I sat down with my team. I told them what I wanted to do. They thought it was crazy. But um, we managed to convince, I guess, the consultant to... We kind of pitched like Dragon's Den, basically. We pitched, like, this. we think this could happen. And what we did was we tried to navigate a way where, even though it's never been done that way, um, to get me to the Games, but the risk of it could have been fatal. So th- at its worst, it could kill me. At its least... I'd be struggling every single day, just to live, because of what the drug was going to do to me, uh, like internally. So the drug is a catabolic steroid. Catabolic means breakdown. So you've got anabolic, which you want to have, because it's you know muscle growth. But catabolic does the opposite. So it breaks down your muscle tissue. You don't recover. Um, your 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 kind of your tendons get very weak. So you rip your pec quite a lot. So I ripped l- loads of my pecs in, the, in four years, and. It was just, um, it was kind of, it's weird, because people say to me, you went through abuse on purpose. And that's what it was. It it literally was abuse on purpose to try and get to the games. But what it did was, everything that I learned in my career, I had to use. Everything in my toolbox, I had to throw everything at it. I knew it was going to come. I knew it was coming, because we, we know every kind of scenario that could play out. And I had to ask myself whether or not am I willing to drag my team into this because if I give up, I let them down, and they're, they're backing me. Like we had a convers- like we had a meeting. Nobody said to me you can't you can't be done. So they believed in that I could do it, but I knew the pressure that I had to make it now. Because you had, you know, pr- people that I care about putting their jobs on the line for me here. Because like not it's never been done. So the fact that you had people that had faith in you, you had people that are willing to put their bodies, mentally emotionally on the line for you. And regardless of what other people thought outside the circle had their support, we managed to get me to Tokyo. Um, obviously, it wasn't a medal, but the fact that I got there was my gold medal, and it was probably the greatest achievement of my life. Because I know it sounds crazy, but the fact that I even made it there alive was crazy because of what I had to do. Um, I guess that's another podcast in itself because it's it's literally a film that that, that two years.
0: We're down for a part though. <laughs> Shall we take a lighter approach and talk about things you do on a day-to-day life? For example, something that was I was curious about is are your home countertops
1: lower? I was thinking about.
2: No, things. I can I can stand on my stumps. I've got a tiptoe that I can tiptoe. <laughs>
0: okay,
1: <laughs>
2: it's quite funny.
1: All right, so you you um, in your house mm-hmm. you have normal normal?
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I climb. I can reach things on the top shelf. It's easy. Adapt. When people see it they're like, Oh my god. <laughs> Even I can't reach down, I'm six foot <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: good.
0: And uh, the dating life.
2: Oh this is the first time I'm gonna speak about dating ever in public. Ooh. Yeah, so it's a pressure.
0: So shall we talk about dating as an Oops. athlete or as someone with a disability?
1: Ooh yeah, Okay, both. Yeah,
2: both. yeah, both. Um, and
1: and I think you you to start you off, you have like a lot of confidence. I have, yeah. So I assume you had the same when you were younger. Mm-hmm. So how did that play out when it came to dating?
2: So, because I grew up in a way that I was very confident, I, I knew what I was capable of, I knew what I offered, um, and I was also quite cute. So not anymore, but I was cute. So like... I'll take your words for yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> like I'll show you the pictures. Um, being disabled meant that I got away with more stuff. I was very cheeky, right, very cheeky. And because I'm disabled, girls are like, oh, he's disabled, he doesn't, know, it's fine. Um, he's also quite cute And he says the right things Blah 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 So actually like Dating was actually I used to date quite a lot As uh, as a kid uh, In terms
1: what, of Would you date um, Average height women Like or
2: I No I, Actually I, I do like tall women I do yeah They're all they're, Well they've all been taller than me If that's what you're saying <laughs> um, But yeah like I know girls Like Guys that are six foot uh, I go to them Well I'm three foot ten uh, <laughs> and, we're, and we're And we're the same height in bed So uh <laughs> You know, I I can't grow legs, but, you know, you can come down to my level. (laughs) So it's fine. Um, Yeah, so when you're cheeky like that and you're confident, they're like, oh, you know what? He's funny. So just just be funny. Yeah, I've tried to always be, set like, use humour. So dating as a disabled person has never really affected me. Uh, Nobody's kind of rejected me because of that. Um, And dating as an athlete, well, that's interesting because as an athlete, I try to not get into relationships because not many people, it's not women, but also men, that day female athletes they don't get the lifestyle it is tough it is like as an athlete you have to be so selfish and driven that the person the people around you have to really love you to deal with you trust me you cancel day night last minute you can't go out you can't drink uh, you have to meal prep instead of going out for a meal like there's things where you're always away on training camps or competing and when you're in competition mode that's it nobody counts so you become this very self-absorbed, selfish person. And it's quite destructive when someone doesn't really understand it. So I've always tried to pick wisely, is what I'd say. Uh, kind of you know vet them, you know, make sure that they're capable. Prepare them for what's coming. So even on the first date, you're like, this, this, this. If not, fine. Like, respect, go away. I'll go, I'll, I'll go my own way. Um, but many girls want to be part of the journey. Many girls want to show you off to their friends, their families, like "look who I'm dating," like stuff like that. But behind closed doors, it gets tough for them, and eventually they will crack. Um, and that's that's been the that's been the kind of pattern. Um, so I guess what I've what I've learned is that one, you have to be very honest from the beginning, uh, and two, you have to be able to always check in on them every week. Are you okay with me doing this? Like, are you fine? how are you feeling? I always check in to make sure that you are considerate because what they've done is they've sacrificed a part of them to be with you because they're experiencing something that nobody really experiences unless you date an athlete. So yeah I've had to kind of, um, you have to have honest conversations and, and for me communication is a big thing. I, I need people to tell me how they think, why they think it, how they feel um, because I'm not a mind reader. And many girls like you to be a mind reader. Uh, We're not, unfortunately. I'm not an alien. I look like one, but I'm not an alien. So, you know, I want people to sit me down and go this, this, this. This is why. I just need to understand their perspective. um, Rather than, oh, you should know. You should know you've done this. I was like, well, you didn't communicate that. So as an athlete, it's quite hard when you've got habits that are very regimental. And they're trying to fit into that regimented life. It's very difficult. But, yeah, so I always say pick wisely. That's my advice.
0: Any unique dating experiences and uh, have they affected like the night before a competition maybe?
2: Okay, so I've got this thing where I have sex, right? So I don't have (laughs) sex like probably four weeks before. um, before, Retention. Yeah, like four weeks before competition. Um, They did a study in America where guys, they took guys and they, you know, I think 50% had sex, 50% didn't. And they see, I think they saw who, what affected their performance. It's basically 50-50. So it, yeah, so I had to experiment on myself, basically, and go, right, what what kind of guy am I? Can I have sex the night before and compete? Or do I have to have, you know, do I not have sex, basically? Um, so what I used to do, and this is crazy, I used to make the girl sleep in the other bedroom. Because I have to sleep for training. I have to recover. So she, she has to sleep in the spare bed.
0: From four weeks before?
2: Uh, even within uh, training. Sometimes when she's over, if I've got a big session in the morning uh, and usually my big sessions are Friday, I'm like, right, you're in the spare room. You can cuddle me in the morning, but you're in the spare room tonight because I need to sleep. Um, So I can't really sleep with people next to me. I struggle. Because if they move about, they start, some girls talk in their sleep, some girls slap you. (laughs) It's weird. So, yeah, so I have to politely ask them to move into the other room um, for a night or two, explain why they get it, but they don't like it.
0: Like, do you sleep alone?
1: No. I sleep with my girlfriend. Um, but funny you say that because I read recently, there was a study, um, that actually, like, from from a health perspective, it's healthier to sleep alone than to sleep with someone. So...
2: Yeah, yeah it's, it's a thing.
0: So I might I might do it long it's time. It's backed
2: by <laughs> science, at least.
0: <laughs> I think that was a good end to the podcast. We don't want to keep you too long. When's your flight now?
2: Tomorrow.
1: All right. So we caught you just on time. Before we end the podcast, we can literally do like a five minute um, closing on what he's doing now. Yes. You have a company now, tech company. I think the most important um, uh, plug that he can do.
0: Yes. Go for it. Okay. Big call out. What are you doing right now and what's the vision?
2: Okay. So context is key. So uh, during the first lockdown, I reflected on my career as a disabled person growing up in gyms. And uh, I realised that i never asked a question of why I was the only disabled person in the gym, ever. I thought, well, maybe you're different because you wanted to go to the Paralympic Games, but what are the barriers stopping disabled people going to the gym? And has that changed in 15, 20 years? And it hasn't. So the fitness, there's so many fitness apps out there, so many. Uh, There's um, there's actually 71,000 fitness apps on the market, right? So non-disabled people have a lot of choice. So I got curious and thought, there must be one for disabled people. So I started looking things up, some researching and realized there's nothing. But there's no fitness app on the market that caters specifically for disabled people. There's other fitness apps that have disability in them, but it's generic. It's not disability specific.
0: Nothing catered.
2: Nothing catered. Um, So I thought, oh, I think I can do this. So within the hour, I started writing down some notes. Called my manager and said, uh, Do you fancy it? He goes, You're crazy, but let's do it. Um, he goes, How much money have you got? I said, uh, Well, my life savings. He's like, all right, let's do it. He goes, I'm all in. So, um, yeah, we went from idea to MVP and launch in, in the UK in eight months during COVID. We managed to do it. And I'm not, I'm not a coder, I'm not an engineer, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm just an athlete that finds a way. And we did it. So now, two years on, um, we're expanding into other countries. So hopefully Brazil in the next couple of months. Um, the app is available in Malta, by the way, now. Uh, and America next year. So it's it's definitely taken off in a way where I couldn't imagine that it's taken off. But I, we knew that the idea was going to be popular with, you know, you've got 1.2 disabled people globally with no access to a fitness app. And this is the one that can... I feel could make them exercise independently uh, for the first time ever. So I'm still not happy with the app because my standards are here. But we'll promise you, if you're patient with me, we'll get you to a place where I think it could be the most accessible fitness app there's ever been, in my opinion.
0: How much is it? 1.2 billion? Disabled people in the world. Billion. Would
2: that be? Yeah, would be.
0: Hopefully your future bank account after you sell the app?
2: (laughs) I'll probably give a lot of it away because it's too much for me. Really? Because I live a simple life. Uh, I'm not really into the luxury. Um, yes, apart from my trainer collection, I've got nothing.
0: You
1: are?
2: No, I'm joking. <laughs> my, <laughs> my trainer collection. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought your train collection. That's what no, I no, meant. trainer. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for joining. Super episode. Guys, if you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, follow, and uh, comment. What should they comment?
2: As in? In the comments. Oh, just... Comment Ali Jawad and tag me in it. Ah,
1: <laughs> tell them you're social, so they can follow you as well.
2: Yeah, so uh, Ali Jawad powerlifter on Instagram. Um, but more importantly, follow the app and um, share it with every disabled person that you know. So exercise is the app. So it should be on my handle in my bio in my Instagram. So yeah, make sure you tell every disabled person that you know.
0: The logo is gonna be here. Here. Yeah, Mev. Mev, you have to add it, the logo over yeah. here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. See you at the next one.